There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 2nd of March 2010. For newcomers, I suggest you look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website and bookmark all the other sites I have listed there because once in a while the big ones go down and uh, for some reason as I'm uploading, uh, I can't load, upload any more until they increase their bandwidth, even though it's supposed to be automatic. So if you have these other sites listed, you can always download the latest shows without a problem. Now there's cuttingthroughthematrix.com.net.us.ca There's Alan Watt, cuttingthroughthematrix.ca There's cuttingthrough.jenkness.com as well. And there's also Alan Watt Sentient Sentinel. Now this Sentinel site uh, is the EU site and it has all the same audios for download but it's got the addition of transcripts of a lot of talks I've given in the past. And you can download them for prints up and choose from <clears throat> the various languages of Europe. Uh, I always mention this is the tin can moment where I rattle the tin can and it never rattles much because there's not much in it. So it's up to you to keep me going. The ads on this show are a pay for the airtime. Uh, I have nothing to do with advertisers at all. They pay RBN directly for the airtime, pays for the staff, the equipment, and the transmission of the program, and it pays their bills as well. So it's up to you to keep me going and uh, support me by buying the things I for sale at cuttingthroughthematrix.com websites or donating to me and go into the comm site, you'll find out how to do it. Now, in the U.S., remember, personal checks are goods to Canada. You can also use an international postal money order from your post office. You've got to stress international before you walk out. Make sure it's not the green one. The green one is internal use only. You want the pink communist one for internationalist. And you can also use MoneyGram or Western Union or cash. Outside the Americas, it's the same idea. You can use Western Union, MoneyGram, Cash, or PayPal. Now, it says donate, but you can donate and send a separate email for your order. Same in the U.S. if you want, uh, and I'll know to send it out to you. And for those who get the disc burned and passed to them who don't like using computers, they play them on their CD players. You can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, Site 41, Box 4, Estair, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. And the postal code is P for Peter, 3, E for Elizabeth, 4, N for Nora, 1, P-3-E-4-N-1. And that's that part done. Now, I'm sure the audience out there are pretty well educated in what's going on in the world today. Uh, outside the general little releases we get from the media and all the diversions too, supplied by the same media. And, you know, we're, we're going through a big transformation in society and the world in general and a whole new way of living, uh, a world where we'll be living in communes. They, they talk about communes and super cities and so on. 
They're talking about really this new world order, the age of austerity for the masses, which means poverty, basically. Although there'll be different levels of poverty as we all go down the tubes until eventually those who think they're middle class uh, higher will also go down the tubes with us. But they'll be the last ones to go. That really is a long-term agenda, a 50-year plan for this part of it. And in the meantime, they must take us down in a post-industrial, a post-productive society. We're all consumers now. Even though we we might work, we're passing things around that are imported from elsewhere. And that's that's a service economy. A service economy is likened to a dog being put into a swimming pool. And it can only swim for as long as its strength holds, then it drowns. That's where we're going. Back with more after these messages. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. It's interesting to see how the big maps were drawn up during World War II, where the world was to be divided up into regions, have all really come to pass. And the big block, like the Soviet block, has turned into the EU block, basically, as they change hats from red to blue, basically. And uh, uh, suddenly we're all going into these big regional blocks. Same with the Pacific Rim region and a whole bunch of countries coming really under the domain of China, the strongest country in that area. And that was set up by the West. China, modern China, was definitely set up by the West uh, to be the main manufacturer for the whole planet. And the UN calls it the role model for the world. But the Americas still have to be totally integrated, and they're working hard with Latin America and people have, are well known to, or they know darn well that uh, the U.S. has had troops uh, going in and out of various Latin American countries for almost 40 years to not really stabilize it as much as keep it uh, in a certain mode so they can integrate them eventually when the time comes under the, under the NAFTA agreement, basically. So the main trading blocks was what really um, was dis- discussed during World War II. And it's interesting, Karl Marx also talks about these blocks and they'd all be under the dominion of a world government. Well, that's all we're going through. I say all, it means everything, but it, that's all we're really going through as we're, as we're deceived and lied to by the, the countries that signed on to it, and that's your governments. Every, every government that signed uh, the, the agreements at California for the United Nations in '46 basically sold their sovereignty right out to the United Nations. And the big foundations and big power brokers, the, the guys who had funded Hitler and funded the Soviet Union all through its empire days, uh, are the guys who also set up the United Nations. I mean, why think small, eh? I mean, you want the whole darn planet. And that's what they did. And... Um, Everything's done by deception, uh, whether it's people supposedly voting to join the EU and saying no 10,000 times and then having it rammed down their throats anyway, to the fact that they said that when they elected a president, he'd be a kind of a, a referee. He'd sit there and referee between the different countries, which is all a joke as well, because it's now in the papers uh, that the president, uh, Van Rompuy, as they call him, is trying to take over and be the chief uh, chutzpah. So uh, this article here 
is from the Telegraph, and it's from the 26th of February 2010. War in the EU as Herman van Rompuy makes a power grab. Open warfare has broken out the top of the European Union, with governments accusing the new president, Herman van Rompuy, of making this power grab. And this is the 26th, as I say, of February. Um, national leaders are concerned Mr. Rompuy, who's been expected to take a, look, a backseat role, is attempting to expand his position. Germany and France backed his candidature on the understanding he would act as an EU chairman rather than a high-profile leader. Well, silly them, eh? But the introduction of the Lisbon Treaty has triggered bitter infighting between Mr. Van Rompuy, Baroness Ashton, the Foreign Minister, and the Commission over who's in charge of representing Europe on the global stage. Now, I said our only chance, really, uh, for the, for the, the people of the world is... Um, when they start to see this world power coming into to, to play, and there's only one throne for Europe, and one for this, and then one for the UN eventually, uh, and that's when the big psychopaths start to fight with each other, because because they can't they can't stand another psychopath winning. You see, um, they're all very competitive people. They're going to be king, and uh, this is really what this is all about. To be honest with you. So as diplomats are increasingly worried that amid the turf wars, there's a danger of Brussels mission creep as squabbling EU chiefs try to enlarge their empires at the expense of each other and national sovereignty. National governments led by Germany are incensed by an attempt by Mr. Van Rompuy to take on new powers he claims were agreed to at an informal summit two weeks ago. There's been particular anger over a letter he sent to the EU leaders following the chaotic February 11th meeting in Brussels that was dominated by the economic crisis in Greece and talk of a European bailout. Despite the fact that the meeting only lasted three hours, with Greece the main topic of discussion, Mr. Van Rompuy insisted that eight to ten specific points were agreed, a view that has been disputed by most EU leaders. This is one of the points of the classified letter seen by the Telegraph gives Mr. Van Rompuy the right to lead the EU's negotiating team at G20 summits, usurping the role of national governments and the Commission. Isn't that something? But again, there's nothing that surprises me at all when you really understand these characters that get picked to go to the top. And they are picked to go to the top, not by the public either. Nobody had heard of this character before he was shoved in front of everyone's face. But he was obviously the man who, who the, the bigger powers had selected to, to do the job and be their man. And so he's got bosses like they all do. And everything is done by deception. But it's no different from the, 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 politi- the political farces we go through. You know, if you want to control a country, you don't control it by politicians. They come and go. You control it by selecting the bureaucrats and making sure that each a bureaucracy has its particular ongoing mandate. They can work for 50 years, 60 years on one mandate in one division of a government. And they're not responsible to the public. And the public generally doesn't even know that such, or such um, divisions exist on specific individual. Well, th- for instance, here's an example. After the end of World War II, uh, part of the land uh, uh, or land lease agreements that was basically bailouts for all those European countries from America. Uh, one of the stipulations the U.S. put on that was that Europe would integrate. And it was far, far more than just um, economic free trade. It was literally integration. That was the mandate. 
and has been reiterated through every NATO document ever since. It's for total integration. But um, they always lie to the public and call it free trade, etc. They set up bureaucracies, and during the whole time from 46 onwards, 48 was the official date that they had in their own papers for the, 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 these organizations within bureaucracies working full-time on it. Uh, all that time, right up until the 90s, they denied that, that, that basically they even existed, these departments for total integration. The only ones that they presented to the public were the bureaucracies dealing with uh, the trade aspects of it only, but not total uh, political integration. So bureau- bureaucrats and bureaucracies are, are more important really than the politicians. The politicians are there to take the mudslinging and catch the tomatoes and the eggs and uh, fill their pockets and do what they're told and go on their merry way afterwards on the boards of directors um, and getting payoffs. That's what they're there for, really. That's what they're really there for. And you cannot put people who are just basic lawyers or or basic whatever uh, into jobs and suddenly they're the head of the, the environmental department or the or the, uh, the judiciary department or something else when they've had no experience before. That's still run by the bureaucrats, and that's why every politician that's appointed over a department is also appointed a particular bureaucrat from that department that tells them what to do. Tells them what to do. That's how it's really run. So government is a show. And that's also why the United Nations mandate has never faltered and never alters its course since it was set up and always gets what it wants with its 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100-year plans for different parts of it. Here's a CNN poll from February 26, 2010. The majority, majority says government's a threat to citizens' rights. No kidding, I'm glad they've noticed something from the CNN. It says, um, Washington, a majority of Americans think the federal government poses a threat to rights of Americans, according to a new national poll. 56% of people questioned in a CNN opinion research corporation survey released Friday say they think the federal government's become so large and powerful that it poses an immediate threat to the rights and freedoms of ordinary citizens. 44% of those polled disagree. The survey indicates a partisan divide on the question. Only 37% of Democrats, 63% of independents, and nearly 7 in 10 Republicans say the federal government poses a threat to the rights of Americans. According to CNN poll numbers released Sunday, Americans overwhelmingly think the U.S. government is broken, though the public overwhelmingly holds out hope that what's broken can be fixed. I've often used that analogy that it's like a Tower of Babel, it's rotten from the foundations and it's held together in, in, in its crooked way and with so much uh, bandages and uh, uh, scotch tape and all the rest of it that you can't fix something that, that's, that's crooked from its foundations. It's faulty from the very, the very basic. CNN Opinion Research Corporation poll was conducted February the 12th to the 15th with 1,023 adult Americans questioned by telephone. The survey's sampling errors minus or plus or minus three percent points for the overall survey. It says here. Uh, now there was an article which kind of shows you where we've gone as a society too. It's called. It was from a Sunday feature from the BBC, 
from Game Boy to Armageddon. And it says, uh, I don't know if it was showed last weekend or what, because I don't have the exact date on it here. War games are sold as military history, but something has begun to change as war and play converged to create what some call the military entertainment complex. Good term, isn't it? But it's always been that way. Ken Hollings pushes the button on this latest phenomena. Men have always played at and with soldiers. Gaming has been an essential part of warfare, and by the 19th century it had been developed into the sophisticated Kriegspiel, derived from the still influential theories of von Clausewitz, and played at military colleges in both Europe and America. These war games then became real games for tabletop strategists by the early 20th century. Now, I'll come back to this article after the following break. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the Matrix, reading an article from Game Boy to Armageddon. It says here, it's talking about war games, basically, and how Hollywood is totally integrated with uh, the military-industrial complex. And it it really has always been that way. They used uh, Hollywood for World War II with all that. They turned out hundreds of these awful movies where everybody, every GI was called Joe for some reason. And literally, you know, hi, Joe, I'm hit. Oh, whoa, whoa, I'll get over there, Joe. All right, everybody was, everybody was Joe. But anyway, uh, and of course the bad guys could never shoot straight in these propaganda wars just to make the guys going into it thinking they were pretty safe. But it says here, a remarkable, a remarkable synergy developed between colleges of war and advisors of such games, particularly in America, and the think tanks of the Rand Corp gaming theory was used intensively to plot the future of war and nuclear destruction. But from the late 70s, computer strategy games started to form a powerful loop between gamers and warriors. With the creation of the SimNet, S-I-M-N-E-T, the military began to develop hugely powerful simulators, and now convergence is taking place between military and the entertainment industry. Some say we are living in what Stanford professor Tim Lenoir has called the military entertainment complex, with military functions increasingly taking place online using simulation for training and in the treatment of soldiers suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. But is this new realm of war truly a revolution, the shape of things to come, or just more virtual bangs for real bucks? Well, it's it's more than that because, you see, war games and simulation were used even during World War II, and I think they first used them for the gunners on uh, heavy bombers. Uh, that's how that was the first real sort of gaming idea. And where the planes would come in, it's all virtual reality. Only it was done with screens and film. And now they're using computers. But uh, the whole idea too was just to make people de- uh, desensitized to killing people. Normal folk don't normally kill people. And uh, they have to find ways of desensitizing you so you, you kill automatically in a Pavlovian reflex, basically. And um, that's why they, they invented the video games in the first place by the military complex. Then they first used them with the military. Now they're into uh, society. They have been for 20-odd years for a good reason. Uh, it's because they wanted that generation to grow up and go into the military to finish off this part of the New World Order, and they've been very, very successful at it, in fact.
Now, it's another thing that ties in with this. And I got to laugh at the, at the media when they come out with these, these ridiculous articles. This, this here is from the checkup. It says, study links violent, violent video games to violent thought and action. Well, gee, who'd have thunk, eh? Who'd have thunk? I just found this out, my, you know, you know what? A study in the March issue of Psychological Bulletin, a journal of the American Psychological Association, shows that playing violent video games increases violent thinking, attitudes, and behaviors among players, and it does nothing to promote positive social behaviors. Well, my goodness, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? It takes the scientists to... Thank goodness they're there to tell us this, uh, this uh, stuff, because we have no common sense. We can't see it for ourselves, uh, obviously. Psychologist Craig Anderson of Iowa State University and his team analyzed existing studies of 130,000 people from the U.S., Europe, and Japan. His findings held for players in Western and Eastern cultures, for male and female players, and for players of various ages. They also contradict some earlier studies whose finding, finds the current authors say are tainted by selection bias, the method by which the, they selected studies to analyze. The new studies notes that while violence in movies and TV shows has long been examined for its potential impact on viewers' proclivity for violence, video gaming, a much newer phenomenon, has not yet been so fully explored. And that's nonsense because, as I say, uh, we are, we're guided through uh, what they call entertainment of all kinds as to how we act and behave. And when little Johnny's been playing on his video games and he's sitting on the floor with his mouth open, uh, totally enraptured as he's killing off whatever he's killing off, that's all it's about. Uh, and mummy says to him, Johnny, come and have your dinner. And he has a temper tantrum or really has an outburst. It's because he's in a battle, you see. And uh, he's, he's going from killing and fighting for his life into obeying mum. It doesn't quite mesh. And this is well understood and always has been. This is an accompanying commentary. Christopher Ferguson and John Kilburn of the Department of Behavioral Applied Science and Criminal Justice at Texas A&M International University note flaws in Anderson's analysis, including what they say is his own selection bias. So then they go on to, to, to bash another scientist as they bring out their new studies with their new scientists and as an in-house kind of thing. But basically... They, they come up with the same old stuff, uh, which is kind of, it might be and it might not be uh, bad for causing aggression and so on and so on. And I can't be bothered reading the rest of it because these kind of articles bore me to tears. Common sense should prevail and it's something we're being taught not to have anymore or, or ignore, I should say. Now, about uh, six months ago, perhaps, but a bit longer, Prince Charles came out with a speech. Now, Prince Charles and his daddy, his father, his father, my my father and I, and his mum, my mother and I, and uh, he came out and uh, he, they tried to find a job for him to do years ago. They said he was a prince without a cause, you see, or a purpose, because mummy did all the work. And they put him in charge of the environment and uh, architecture for cities, that kind of stuff. Well, Here's his latest thing, and we've all become slum dwellers for the good of the planet. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. 
this is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, talking about Prince Charles and how we should really listen to to him when he, they, they put him up there on the pedestal and he opens his mouth and says something, uh, because uh, it's really in line with the big agenda. He was the first one publicly to be put in front of the media, at least, to, and to talk about the public-private partnership deals. Uh, that were to come along, and that's all we have now is public-private private partnership. But he, he in this two-part uh, video that some, someone sent me, it's a documentary from, I think, the BBC, he talked about how we can learn a lot from slum dwellers for for conservation and all that kind of stuff. And uh, this was followed by the the investigative journalist who went across to India to this place that uh, Charles had mentioned at Mumbai, which is a big up-and-coming city, but it's got the largest slum uh, city in the middle of it. It's a shack town, a shanty town in the middle, with, uh, I think, it's um, one million uh, people per square mile, crammed together like you wouldn't believe. And he he goes over there, this reporter, and he sees the, the children <laughs> defecating in the streets and all this kind of stuff, and they're living amongst open sewage, running through the streets and stuff like that. And uh, this is what Prince Charles advocates, because you see there's very little crime there, and the folk get on so well, apparently, and their consumption level is awfully low, uh, and they don't give off off much uh, greenhouse gases, because I guess they're so darn poor. But anyway, um, it's worth seeing. I'll try and track up uh, a link to that, if I can find it somewhere up on uh, one of the servers out there, to show you. It's a fantastic documentary, two-part documentary on Mumbai. But here's an article here from the Greenies, you see, because as I'm saying, you're listening to Prince Charles, but he, he makes a statement. It means this is going to be part of the agenda. That's what he, it means when he says this. And this is from Prospects, uh, the Greenie magazine, on the same topic after Charles had, had, had his say, you see, pressed the button and they all fall into action. How slums can save the planet from Prospect, 27th of January 2010, issue 167. 60 million people in the developing world are leaving the countryside every year. Well, you see, what he doesn't mention here, that is Agenda 21. We have to get all off the countryside and crammed into the big cities as we die off and we're more and more sterile every year um, up until the year 2050. The squatter cities that have emerged can teach us about uh, much about the future urban living. So squatter cities have to teach us, right? It says, uh, in 1983, architect Peter Calthorpe gave up on San Francisco, where he tried and failed to organize a neighborhood community. Now, communities is commutarianism. That's what George Bush Sr. first mentioned. That's to be the new way of commutarianism, a, a sort of blend of communist China and Western values merged together, but more towards the communist China side. And it says, and this guy moved to a houseboat in Susalito, a town on the San Francisco Bay. He ended up on South 40 Dock, where I also live. This is the guy who wrote this column. Part of a community of 400 houseboats in a place with the densest housing in California, without trying. It's an intense, proud community in which no one locked their doors. Calthorpe looked for an element of design magic that made it work and concluded it was the dock itself and the density. Everyone who lived in the houseboats in South 40 Dock passed each other on foot daily, trundling to and from the parking lot on shore. All residents knew each other's faces and voices and cats. I guess they had no dogs there, 
which tells me something. It was a community, Calthrop decided, because it was walkable. Building on that insight, Calthrop became one of the founders of the new urbanism, along with Andres Duany, Elizabeth Plater, Zyberk, and others. Now, they'll all have funding from the big foundations you'll find if you, if you do a search, I'm sure. In 1985, he reintroduced the concept of walkability in redefining cities, an article in the Whole Earth Review, an American counterculture magazine that focused on technology, community building, and the environment. Since then, new urbanism has become the dominant force in city planning, promoting high-density, mixed-use, walkability, mass transit, eclectic design, and regionalism. It's a complete United Nations agenda here. It drew one of its main ideas from the houseboat community. There are plenty more ideas to be discovered in the squatter cities of the developing world, the, the conurbations made up of people who do not legally occupy the land they live on. You see, in, in the Agenda 21, you'll have no private property. The state literally will basically own everything. Or they might have public private with, uh, with uh, sort of chain store type um, uh, rental places and skyscrapers owned by the, you know, a handful of people. It says one billion people live in these cities, and according to the UN, this number will double in the next 25 years. There are thousands of them, and they're mainly young populations test out new ideas, unfettered by law or tradition. And they don't pay taxes either, by the way. Alleyways in squatter cities, for example, are a dense interplay of retail and services. If I find that link for the one on India, and, and, and I'll put it up on my website at the end of the show if I can find it, um, You'll see how what they're talking about, how they all get along, etc. I'm not. There's more rats. There's just as many rats as people. You'll see them all over the place, and open sewage that they step over all the time. And their water pipes go through this strange one million complex uh, place. Uh, in float the, the pipes literally uh, in the sewage troughs. So when there's a leak in the pipes, the sewage gets into your drinking water. And by the way, they only turn the water on for two hours per day for everyone. This is one chair, barber shops and three-seat bars interspersed with the clothes racks and fruit tables. One proposal is to use these as a model for shopping areas, allow the informal sector to take over downtown areas after 6pm, suggests Jamie Lerner, the former mayor of Curitiba, Brazil. This will inject life into the city. I'd say it would infect it into the city. But anyway, that's my opinion. The reversal of opinion about fast-growing cities previously considered bad news began with the challenge of slums. A 2003 United Nations Habitat report. <laughs> the book's optimism, oh, derived from its groundbreaking fieldwork. 37 case studies in slums worldwide. Instead of just compiling numbers and filtering them through theory, researchers hung out in the slums and talked to the people. They came back with an unexpected observation. Cities are so much more successful in promoting new forms of income generation, and it's so much cheaper to provide services in urban areas than some experts have actually suggested that the only realistic poverty reduction strategy is to get as many people as possible to move to the city. (laughs) It's amazing how they come out with the the UN agenda, isn't it? The magic of squatter cities, if you can stand the smell of sewage everywhere and watch where you put your feet, is that they are improved steadily and gradually by the residents. To a planner's eye, these cities look chaotic. (laughs) You've got to see this two-part video if you think it looks chaotic. (laughs) The rats rats are looking for a clean bit to to sit on. You know, everybody else's feces. 
I trained as a biologist, and to my eye, they looked organic. Well, it's certainly organic matter. Um, it says they have maximum density, one million people per square mile in some areas of Mumbai, and have minimum energy and material use. People get around by foot, bicycle, rickshaw, or the universal shared taxi. By the way, Mumbai also has its own little mafia, because even there there's a class structure in the shanty town. Uh, there's even a millionaire living in the middle of it who has all these uh, sweatshops throughout it. And the little boys that you'll see in the video all work for them and sleep in the shops as well. They have nowhere else to go. Uh, and probably that'll come out their wages as well. But, but, but it's a fantastic to watch the exploitation and how these characters, these, these prostitutes here, these, these sellouts under the guise of environmentalism that would never, ever sleep a night in a place like that are wanting to push this stuff on all of us. No, no kidding, eh? It's just a joke, such a joke. What a farce. But, um, but that's what they give us, you see. How, how wonderful it is in the slum where you're living with tin can, uh, uh, flattened tin cans all, um, stuck together for a wall <laughs> and stuff like that. And you've got 20 folk in a room living. Uh, just a wonderful future they're bringing in for us. But as I tell you, it's low consumption. It's um, low carbon outputs. You know. Ah, dear, dear, the, the rubbish they peddle. Uh, mind you, they say that perception is, becomes reality, and the more propaganda they give us, they could make us believe anything, I suppose. But it reminds me of the old days, too, in the Middle Ages, where the kings would have their massive castles on top of the hill, and the peasants all lived down below in mud shacks with uh, thatched roofs and straw on the floor to cover the mud. Uh, I guess that was good sustainability, according to uh, the elite that run the world today. Mind you, it's a new feudal system, as Carl Quigley said, so it's really the same old feudal system, isn't it? Tuesday, the 2nd of March, 2010, from The Telegraph, this article says, I've mentioned so many articles about what they do to your food and what they make popular, and whenever something's been made popular, avoid it like the plague, where it's bottled water that has made the massive fat, and you found out the bisphenol A was in it and, and a whole bunch of other things that basically sterilized you, which was there on purpose. They knew it all along. Uh, here's another one here, fruit juices, right? It's from a telegraph. Carcinogen antimony found in fruit juices. A chemical linked to cancer has been found in fruit juices and cordials drunk by millions of people every day across Britain and America, as do scientists have revealed. The 1st of March, 2010. Scientists have found the levels of the antimony, which can be lethal in large doses in commercial juices and cordials that exceed the EU limit for drinking water and raise concern about leaching from packaging. University of Copenhagen found that bottles of fruit juice and squash contained up to 2.5 times more of the substance as is deemed safe in tap water under the EU guidelines. In some cases, the levels of antimony were 10 times higher. Researchers studied uh, the levels in various juices, mainly red fruit juices packaged in PET bottles, glass bottles and Tetra Pak cartons. Studying antimony levels is of interest because of concern about the impact of increased exposure on human health and the environment. I guess the environment's first, then human health is sort of secondary. Of part, uh, of particular concern is the antimony trioxide, a suspected carcinogen that's used in the production of PET. 
And they looked at a whole bunch of different ones, 42 uh, different uh, drinks from 16 different brands, and they found that they pretty well all had these high concentrations of this carcinogen in it. Well, remember, too, uh, I think it was Dr. Day that attended one of these big conferences, I think it was related to the United Nations, back in the 60s or 70s, and it was discussed about ways to kill the people. And it was said that, uh, well, if you're going to die of anything at all, why shouldn't it be cancer? And that was the idea, step up the cancers. It was about the same time in the, uh, the 50s, actually, where they came out with uh, all the polio vaccines that contained the simian virus 40. This only function is to cause cancers. And people will never, ever take that leap. They can climb the ladder, you know, but they can't take the last few steps. They have to cross the major steps to realize that they don't just talk about depopulation, uh, they do something about it. Now, how, if you were in charge of the world, would you do something about it? Would you ask for volunteers? Well, of course not. They simply went ahead and did it, folks. And that's why everyone's dropping down, all age groups with cancers. That's why, too, uh, Monsanto was given the complete go-ahead, not just go-ahead, they created Monsanto to push all of these pesticides, these incredibly toxic pesticides, which are soaked up by the plant and it's through it's all of its cellular structure, and they're all carcinogenic. Uh, it's a sad thing to say. I'm not being a fear monger. I'm just telling you the facts. That's what's happening. They know what's causing it, just like they know what's causing sterility in the Western world. They know these things. To understand when cancer started to skyrocket, just like autism and all the rest of these things with, with, with inoculations in the food, it's never been declared a crisis. When something takes off in a graph like a rocket going into the outer space, it surely should be a crisis. And these all go off like rockets. But there's no, oh no, it's now the new normal. It's the new normal, you understand. You see, depopulation by it wasn't just by preventing birth; it was also to do with uh, uh, dying, uh, increasing the death rate. Was all part of the UN studies back in the 50s, and even at the very beginning of its setup. In fact, they had the Department of Population Council. And I've read so many articles over the years from the big boys' books themselves who worked for the United Nations, like Julian Huxley, when he talks about, for, for an example, they've got to bring humanity off their pedestal and take, bring down this, um, uh, this idea that we're somehow more special than any other species. In other words, dehumanizes, dehumanize life itself and uh, trivialize life, in fact, itself. And he also talked about bringing, stepping up the death rate and stepping up the abortion rates and so on. Not because it was with too many people. You understand it's too many of the, the wrong people. If you believe in evolution, you, you will believe that academia and all those who are running this world right now, through all their think tanks and uh, all the prostitutes that work for the big foundations, um, and live off your tax money, they actually believe they're more evolved than the rest the old man and woman who used to work in the factories are, are the old type. There's no use for them anymore. They are, they are a step behind in evolution. 
Same idea as in Marx's theory that when they came into power to kill off those who were not up to working in a capitalist system. First you get up to a capitalist system, then you bring in Marxism during industry. If the people don't even need money, they're self-sufficient, you must kill off those populations. And that's what they did with the Ukraine. That's why they claim they did it. It would take too long to bring them up through through the various phases or stages in this supposed pseudoscience called Marxism. So to be killed off. Same thing is going on today. Those who are left behind in this new system, the ones who would normally work in factories and do laboring or semi-skilled jobs, there's no use for them now. So they kill them off. Here's another article here. Study explores child end-of-life scenarios. You see, we're hearing about... I read the other day, too, about some new laws in Britain and the U.S. and elsewhere to do with euthanasia. And here they go for children now. And this article here is from the Boston Globe, March the 2nd, 2010. And then they give you a little... They always give you... just It's almost as though they were doing a TV documentary on it. And there's a crying mum there, you see, to, to get the emotion fixed so that the point can get fixed in your mind that this is what goes with this emotion. When Christine Riley's little boy was being treated for cancer, she told his doctor she could handle almost anything. The only thing I will not be able to tolerate is him looking at me and saying, Mummy, it hurts, she recalled yesterday. Michael died when he was five years old of alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, which was diagnosed when he was nine months. His pain was well controlled, especially at the end of his life, but Riley, who lives in Whitman, said she can understand why a parent would contemplate ending the life of a dying child sooner if that would ease the child's unrelieved suffering. And I'll be back with more on how to do it after this break. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. I'll put these links up on my site, cuttingthroughthematrix.com, at the end of the night. If ExploreNet graces me with more than my usual twice-up dial-up speed for supposedly high-speed satellite internet. I should take the phone call. There's a phone call from Ireland. It's Brian. Are you there, Brian? I am, Alan. How are you? Not so bad. Good, good. Uh, I, I know you've talked a lot about um, the scourge of uh, pedophilia in our yes. society. I don't know if you're probably aware of this uh, terrible case in Scotland, your home country. Oh yeah, it's it's all it's all through Britain though, and I, I read the articles uh, about um, the Dunblane shooting and how he was the Hamilton himself, who did the shooting, was a homosexual paedophile, well known to the police, and how a lord, a British lord, at uh, the, the House of Lords in England, had uh, known of Hamilton personally because of a paedophile ring. And he also got the license for the handgun that Hamilton used in the shootings. But it's, it's a fascinating journey and through this strange uh, culture, subculture, uh, that's kept out of the mainstream because I think it's one important person after another. Um, and lots of the aristocracy that are involved in this and people have a hard time believing that there are such organized uh, national and international pedophilia rings. But it is true. They actually exist. Yeah. I mean, it's just opened the whole kind of worms here <clears throat> because it's kind of, it's all the way up to the top here. You know, we're talking top politicians, 
Well, I noticed too that Tony Blair and uh, Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn's well known for his proclivities, um, covered up an awful lot of this stuff and covered up the lords, etc., that were involved in the, these cases. But what's also interesting in Scotland is how they've got everything sewn up with uh, uh, the woman who's in charge of the whole police commission up there, um, who's also worked with the law office that uh, that deals with a lot of these characters. I mean, it seems everyone comes from one law office and gets into these jobs. They all know each other and they all cover for each other. That's what we can see there. Try, yeah. And uh, another disturbing factor is um, Ollie's uncle was found dead in very mysterious circumstances in a burnt-out car. Mm-hmm. Um, this was uh, back in 1997, I think he he found out a few things. And um, yeah, didn't he also didn't he also lock up and uh, uh, um, the guy who was leading this investigation on behalf of the people? Uh, didn't they also arrest him recently as well? Oh, yeah, there was a journalist, Robert Green, yeah. <clears throat> and if um, your listeners go onto YouTube there, um, just type in Robert Green on the Holly Gregg case, you'll get he's, he does a talk mm-hmm. and he explains in detail what he, he uncovered. And I think a week or two later he was arrested in Aberdeen for handing out leaflets and flyers. Can you believe that, getting arrested for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah for breach of the peace, I believe. Breach of the peace for handing out flyers, uh, exposing some some bigwigs, yeah. And on BBC Scotland and um, a lot of the media have been silenced. Um. Well, the BBC, I'm not surprised at when you see who works there, but but um, this stuff is, is truly rife amongst the upper classes, especially. And it's just like the Vatican. Malachi Martin talked about it in the Vatican since the 60s. A clique, a very powerful clique that, that stood up and, and covered each other's Selves when they were caught. Uh, it's the same with paedophilia and child pornography and these characters that are into it. Very powerful people and uh, into very shady, evil stuff, uh, disgusting stuff, are covering for each other too in that whole system over in Scotland and England, right up to the House of Lords, so you're quite right. But thanks for calling. That's the end of the show. I see music coming in. And from Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada... It's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you.